Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Divine love, um, we know that you are here with us now, that you're with us always. We just ask that you would teach us to love you more and teach us to love one another more. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, You can be seated. Um, Hello, everyone. Um, My name is Rachel Marble, and I have the pleasure of serving um, this community on the oversight team. And I've been doing that. uh, This is my second year doing that. So... Um, I've been here at Pearl for about five years alongside my wife, Kylie, who is the youth coordinator, and now our daughter, Harriet. I'm just going to move this a little bit. Okay. Um, As stated earlier, we live out in Forest Grove, uh, which, depending on where you live in Portland, might as well be the Oregon coast to a lot of you. Um, It's well worth the commute, I I assure you. Um, We have two doodles, two cats, uh, two roommates. Um, It's basically Noah's Ark out there. Um, We have an old house that I love to patch up, and there's never-ending opportunities for that. Um, And I have a side hustle, as people do nowadays, making cupcakes. Uh, It's not very... I'm not hustling very hard, trust me. Um, My 9-to-5 life is occupied by being a city planner, which I really love, and it pays the bills, so win-win on that. Um, As I believe Linda stated last week, it is the utmost joy that we have in our time on the board to stand here each summer and talk with you. Um, We all excel at public speaking, so we just love it. Um, Okay, maybe not. But um, it does give us an opportunity to share what's been on our hearts um, and for you all to get to know us a little better. So um, it's it's worth it. Um, So last year, I shared about inclusion and what that has meant to me and my family to be in this community and to be welcomed here after being in spaces that we weren't welcome to be ourselves. Um, This year, I'd like to talk about fear and love. Um, I grew up in the Methodist Church in the South. Um, I'm not sure if anyone is familiar with the church in the South, um, but it's a thing. Um, I wouldn't have said growing up that my church was promoting a tradition of faith rooted in fear. There weren't, that I recall, a lot of fire and brimstone sermons or cries of, repent, repent, the kingdom is near. Um, It was a lot more subtle than that. But I found myself afraid a lot. Afraid that I wasn't really saved or that I wasn't a good enough Christian. Afraid that I wasn't really hearing the voice of God afraid that when I died, I would stand before the pearly gates in judgment and they wouldn't open, that I would be turned away. So maybe, just maybe, I should raise my hand again at the youth retreat 
uh, accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior just one more time in case it didn't stick the last few times. Looking back, my faith was an emotional roller coaster. Youth group had a lot of talks with dramatic testimonies where someone had really, usually like around a campfire, where someone had really turned um, to making bad choices, and then they found Jesus, and then they turned away from their past self, and now, you know, was uh, happy-go-lucky. In college, I went to Passion Conference, and I sat in a basketball arena with 25,000 other students. Uh, Chris Tomlin led a high-energy worship session with a light show befitting a rock concert. It was emotionally charged and left you feeling afterwards like an adrenaline junkie looking for your next plane to jump out of. That faith brought people into playing to emotions and creating a vacuum in which if you didn't have an emotional experience at church, you left feeling very disconnected from God. And there, under all of that emotion, permeating that space was fear. I understand why fear can be useful. Fear is a tool for self-preservation. It causes us to avoid or turn away from things which cause us harm or are threatening. Fear in many ways is a more basic instinct than others, but it does have to be learned. I'm seeing that now firsthand with uh, my toddler. She doesn't know yet to be afraid of things that will hurt her. I'm learning that toddlers have very little, self, uh, very little sense of self-preservation. <laughs> Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a psychiatrist best known for her work around folks who are terminally ill, says this about fear. There are only two emotions, love and fear. All positive emotions come from love all negative emotions come from fear. Fear oh, from love flows happiness, contentment, peace, and joy. From fear comes anger, hate, anxiety, and guilt. It's true that there are only two primary emotions, love and fear. But it's more accurate to say that there is only love or fear, because we cannot feel those two emotions together at exactly the same time. They're opposites. If we're in fear, we are not in a place of love. And we're, when we're in a place of love, we cannot be in a place of fear. I think that in the context of my faith growing up, this makes sense. I thought that my faith was founded on loving God. And in reality, I was fearing God and fearing being apart from God. That was a really tiring state to be in constantly feeling afraid that I didn't have it right, constantly fearing the what if. I'm going to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole with this story, so bear with me. I promise uh, I'll bring it back in the end. After college, uh, determined to delay entering the real world, I joined the Peace Corps. I spent my senior year going through the strenuous application process with interviews, physical exams, and checklists out the wazoo. At the time I joined, about one in seven people got accepted and got a position, so it's fairly rigorous. And finally, uh, I got accepted, and I awaited the call telling me where I would go. The way the Peace Corps works, you jump through all these hoops to be accepted, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and then they give you an offer with just a region of the world. They don't tell you what country you're going to. It's an offer, but really, if they make you an offer and you turn it down, you're not going to get another one. 
So the phone rang one day, and I was sitting in a parking lot outside of Panera. It was West Africa. Think about it and let us know. I spoke French, so I knew that this was the most likely possibility. And I also knew that my mom was hoping for literally anywhere else. I did accept. And the day after Thanksgiving in 2011, I found myself on a plane to Philadelphia for training. I sold my car, I gave away my dog, and I braced myself for 27 months away from home. Once we arrived, I looked around and I saw 30 other smiling faces, my new community. We were headed to Guinea. There was a reason they said that we were all young and healthy. Guinea was a really tough place to live. After a few days of PowerPoints, we boarded the plane with all of our giant backpacks and we set out for West Africa. Don't worry, there'll be three more months of training in country before we send you off on your own, they said. The trip there was a bit tumultuous. We had a layover in Amsterdam, and when all 30 of us got to the gate to board the plane to Guinea, me and one other volunteer got stopped at the gate. We didn't have valid tickets, so we couldn't get on the plane. We were stuck. We had no tickets, and we needed to get out of the terminal immediately. It was about 3 in the morning in DC, so we were like, OK. Uh, we'll just have to wait until morning and figure it out then. In the Amsterdam airport. Uh, we got to figure it figured out, and about a day later, we arrived in Guinea to join our group, getting our first view of Conakry. The Peace Corps headquarters was an old hotel camp uh, compound um, by the ocean with armed guards out front. In 2011, we were the second group of Peace Corps volunteers allowed back in the country after a violent coup in 2008 that had left the president dead. There wasn't steady electricity in the country um, just when the government decided to turn on the courant, which you never really know when was going to happen or how long it would be on for. There was no water system, just wells and uh, catchment uh, systems to hold water on the rooftops. Uh, and this was in the capital of the country. A few days later, we left the capital for our training site, and we met our host families that we would stay with during training for three months. We had an adoption ceremony, and our families came eagerly forward to meet us, welcoming us and taking us back to their homes. I quickly learned that uh, my family didn't speak French at all, and I would need to learn Susu as quickly as possible. We, uh, our, our house was on the other side of the highway, which was really just a dirt road, um, but it was kind of isolated from the other volunteers. They ushered me into our, my new living space, a concrete room off the back of the house, which was mostly taken up by a king-size bed with a hand-carved wooden frame, and they left me to get settled. School started the next morning, and the bus would be by to pick me up. It was midday, so I unpacked, and I eventually wandered outside to sit on the porch. No one really talked to me, and honestly, I was getting hungry. <laughs> Eventually, many hours later, it was nighttime. I hadn't eaten anything all day, and it was time for bed. Uh, without lights, there's not much to do after dark. So I got a cliff bar out of my bag, and I settled into my bed in as little clothing as was acceptable. It was really hot there. I tucked in my mosquito netting, and I stared up at the ceiling, covered in spiders. 
don't worry about the spiders, they said. They eat mosquitoes. Laying in a pool of my own sweat with a grumbling tummy, I began to panic, and the fear set in. <laughs> what had I done? What was I doing here? How would I survive 27 months of this? I pulled out my flip phone they had given me that day, and I knew that I only had two minutes prepaid. We were gonna get uh, more minutes the next day in town. I dialed my mom, and I just cried. This is so crazy, I have no clue what I'm doing here. <laughs> what if I can't do this? With only two minutes on the phone, I barely felt like I got to say anything, and then it cut off. I was alone. It had been the middle of the night in Georgia when I called my mom, and uh, knowing that I needed her in that moment, she tried calling me back, but she couldn't get Skype to work. She got in her car, and she drove to my dad's for help. Uh, they were recently divorced, so I assure you this was no small thing. My phone rang, and to my delight, it was her. It's okay, she said. I am proud of you. I'm proud of you for getting on the plane, and no matter how long you stay, you did it, and we love you. The next morning, I woke up with a change of heart. Everything would be okay, and if I had to bail, my family would welcome me home. It wouldn't be a failure. The next few days, I went to language classes, health and safety trainings, and I spent time with my host family. They warmed up to me, and I started to enjoy it. It was tough, don't get me wrong. <laughs> it was really hot, and the food was so spicy that I could barely eat it. And, uh, but there was a rhythm to life there that was really pleasant. There were afternoons, sitting in the shade and eating fresh oranges off the trees. There were quiet mornings um, and really dark, beautiful nights. After uh, about a week after arriving, I woke one morning and I realized that my legs were numb. I could barely move them. Everything from my lower back south was heavy and moving felt like I was walking through quicksand. What was happening? I called my friend Shane and I said, can you come over here and help me get to the bus? I don't think I'm gonna make it to the bus stop. Something was wrong and I didn't know what. They took me back to the Capitol and I saw the Peace Corps doctor. He was clueless as to what it could be. They took me to a hospital and I got x-rays and blood tests, nothing. No reason for what was happening. I laid around the Peace Corps compound, biding my time reading Harry Potter and listening to Sarah Groves and Audrey Assad on repeat. I was alone, essentially, in a small hotel, uh, but I tried to keep busy. It was getting close to Christmas, so I decided to decorate the palm tree in the living room, cutting out paper snowflakes and ornaments, making it really festive for when everyone came back for Christmas break. My mom called once a day to check in, and I felt really oddly at peace, even with everything happening, a supernatural peace. Eventually, after this dragged on for a little over a week, they decided I needed an MRI. Uh, there wasn't an MRI machine in the country, so they said, we're gonna have to send you somewhere else. Your options are South Africa, Morocco, or Paris. And I said, 
America. Just send me home. So I packed my things, and I knew I wouldn't be coming back. I left all my stuff under the Christmas tree for the other volunteers, things that I had brought to remind me of home, uh, Country Time Lemonade and Velveeta Mac and Cheese. <laughs> I knew they would really love it. I boarded the plane, crutches and all, and I hobbled my way home. On the plane from Paris to Atlanta, it wasn't a direct flight, uh, I looked over at the gal sitting next to me and I noticed her passport. Uh, it was a Peace Corps passport. And she told me she was going home. She had been in a small town in Eastern Europe and she had felt so terribly alone. She had been taught a language that people in her village didn't really speak and communication with anyone was nearly impossible. Eventually, she decided to quit um, but no one knew she was coming home, not even her parents. She was really afraid that everyone would think she was a failure, and she was ashamed. I told her the same thing that my mom told me. I said, you got on the plane. You took a huge leap. Your family will love you no matter the outcome. You did it. When my parents picked me up at the airport, uh, we headed straight to the emergency room, uh, sort of, because I made them stop and get me hot wings. Um, that was the first thing I wanted <laughs> for some reason. Um, and after a few tests, a young doctor walked in and told me that I had blood clots in both of my legs. It turned out later that I also had blood clots in my pelvis and abdomen, really everywhere, but they missed those. The whole experience was a whirlwind. Uh, and there were moments of fear, as there should be when your life is in danger. But there was also a pervasive sense of peace that I can only describe as otherworldly. For the first time in my life, I truly felt like God was with me, and I didn't need to fear. He was for me, not against me. He was not angry, but pure love. When I found Pearl, I found a faith home that felt very different from the one that I grew up in. It was so refreshing to me to be in a place that cultivated lives being animated by divine love, that valued ways of being in the world embodied by Jesus, that didn't extend a table based on fear that you might uh, be excluded from it, but knowing that all are welcome to it. My faith now has freedom that it didn't have before. It is rooted in love and not bound or motivated by fear. Like I said earlier, fear is a good tool for self-preservation. But is it a tool for growing and becoming? Is it a tool for learning ways to be in the world that are not harmful to others? Ways Jesus embodied when he walked this earth? No. It is love alone that powers those things. Love alone that will propel us into the divine story which we are all a part of. Uh, instead of closing in prayer, I'm going to close with a poem by Mary Oliver. Uh, I think this has been read before by an oversight team member, um, but it is a really amazing poem. Um, and if you haven't read any of Mary Oliver's work, I cannot encourage you enough to check out a book of, of hers. It's all amazing. This is called uh, Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. 
You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination. Calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Thank you.